Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 67. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, we have a very special guest, an old friend of mine going way, way back, Mr. Tony Duncan. Before we get to Tony, though, let's thank our sponsors, starting with the most important sponsor there is, my main sponsor, my favorite sponsor, it's the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Find out about the IJA at juggle.org, especially the upcoming festival this year in Fort Wayne, Indiana, directed by the one and only David Kane. We have a new sponsor. It's my new book, Driven to Succeed, a book about life, success, and how to drive your best, combining stories from my career and my new stories about being a driving instructor. So go to Amazon.com and look for Driven to Succeed. Talk about a man who's driven to succeed. Let's drop everything and listen to Mr. Tony Duncan. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 67 to my very special guest. Hello, Mr. Tony Duncan. Hi, Tony. Hi, Dan. Good to uh, talk with you again. Now, I heard you're, you're in a new house. You're in Vermont. How long have you been in this new house? December 14th, we bought it. It's, uh, it's an amazing house. It's all electric, solar panels, uh, radiant floor heating, 17-foot ceiling in the living room, designed by a brilliant architect. Can't really afford it, but what the hell. Now, you said the main thing, 17-foot ceilings. Yeah, a juggler, well, that's, uh, that's heaven. Yeah, I haven't really utilized it that much, but it's going to. I'm definitely going to. And congratulations for order. You have a, a marriage coming up in July, so you're not a newlywed yet. You're a pre-newlywed. Congratulations. Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very exciting. And uh, just a second. What, what does it say here? I'm about to get married to the most amazing person in the world. Okay. <laughs> Was that a note she just gave you? How did that come yeah, up? Yes. Yeah, it was, how, did you, how did you guess that? I, well, it, seemed, it sounded so spontaneous. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. I'm also married to the most amazing person in the world, and my wife, Karen, who does all the editing for the Drop Everything podcast, and she just gave me a look as well. So uh-huh. okay. <laughs> we, know, we know what we're doing. We know what we're doing. We have a lot to cover, so I want to go way, way back, because you and I go way back, but let's go back even further than that. How did juggling first enter your life, and what was your first experience of seeing a juggler? I actually really started juggling in college. I uh, had dropped out of studying astrophysics and was studying evolutionary biology and actually designed a course for myself on learning. I could juggle a little bit. I, I could juggle three balls, but I decided I was going to teach myself to juggle five balls because how hard could that be? And I spent a semester take, writing a journal and studying stuff about education and about learning how you learn stuff and about reflection. And I eventually basically did. I, I think I got over 100 throws by the end of the semester. And how did you choose juggling as a subject? Was that just seemed like the most logical thing that could be sort of quantified as, a, as an educational research? Yeah, that actually was exactly it. It was something where I could like be learning something and I could make objective, concrete assessments of my progress. Well, that's a pretty late start to actually start in college and become a professional. Do you think that was maybe an advantage in some ways that you kind of came into it older? Or do you feel that you regret not having started it like a like Gatto, like at five or six? I don't know. That's it's sort of hard to say. You know, I certainly, you know, I think it limited my potential technically. Um, but, um, there's sort of the path I took was kind of windy and 
I'm kind of happy where I am now with it. If I'd gotten really good, maybe I would have just stayed as a technical juggler instead of developing all sorts of other sort of more theatrical elements. We always have struck me as a very unique juggler, like someone who sort of carved their own path. And I know in your promotional material, you talk quite a bit about being unique and original. How, how important do you think it is for jugglers now that you see nowadays that who do amazing stunts? Do you think that maybe amazing stunts and originality is kind of a trade-off between the two? Well, no. I mean, I, I've seen people do amazing stuff that's extremely original now, especially with YouTube and just the explosion of juggling all over the world. I mean, there's people who are doing things at skill levels that are just mind-boggling that are also extremely unique. There certainly has to be a balance between how much time you can spend developing something so that you can perform it compared to other aspects that are entertaining that don't take the same amount of intensity, the amount of resource to do. Now, in the days before YouTube, so you're in college, what was your memories of seeing other jugglers? Was it a time you saw other jugglers and did that inspire you? And, and what encouraged you then to pursue it as a professional career? Well, after I sort of started teaching myself this five balls, I ran into, a, I was in Washington, D.C. I was uh, at George Washington University and then at a program of Goddard College at a traffic circle, DuPont Circle in Washington. I saw these people juggling. I was just like, wow, there are people around here who do this. And I saw two guys who were throwing these sticks back and forth to each other and was just like, oh, my God, if I could ever learn how to do that, that would be like the most amazing thing in the world. Do you remember their names or were they just lost in history as unnamed jugglers? Yeah, I don't know. There's one of them um, who en ended up becoming my first partner, Shelly Harris, who was part of that group. And she may have started it, actually. And we became good friends. And actually, we hitchhiked to our first convention in Fargo, North Dakota. That was your first convention? That was mine as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 1980. Yep, that was pretty cool. It was pretty, pretty mind-blowing to a 21-year-old. Uh, now, what about your family background? Uh, you see here that you were, you're from Havana, Cuba. Is there any other performers or entertainers in your family? No, my father was a diplomat and development consultant, and my mother was raised four kids. Actually, all of the kids in my family were born in different countries. My sister was born in Ohio, my other sister in Costa Rica, my brother in Pakistan, and I was born in Cuba. And how long did you spend in Cuba before you moved away? Uh, less than a year. It was during the Cuban Revolution, so it wasn't actually an ideal place for American diplomats to hang out in. Now, you're the second guest who has a connection to Cuba. Uh, we talked earlier that Sean Gandini also is from Cuba. Yeah. Any uh, contact when you were one years old with Sean Candini? Or... No, well, he's actually a bit younger than me. So... Right, right. <laughs> there wouldn't have been. I was actually, I had a, uh, a tenant in my previous house who uh, told me that he uh, knew a juggler, a guy named Sean Gandini, and that he actually visited his family in Cuba. Now, again, it was after I was born, but that's how I found out that Sean had been there. Now, you're on this educational path and it sounds like you had a lot of different subjects, because I see you studied education theory, revolutionary biology, philosophy. What was the path before juggling sidetracked you? Well, I was either going to be an astrophysicist or an evolutionary biologist. I mean, there was those were the two most important academic things, obviously. So I was going to be a professor or some researcher or something like that. And uh, my father wanted a scholar in the family. It was a bit of a jump to go from that to 
being a juggler. So it was just that one experience of seeing the other jugglers. At what point did you start working and figuring you could get, you could get money for it? How did you start your professional career? Again, I started in Washington. My girlfriend moved to New York, and I followed her there and met jugglers there. And then I, I basically I moved to San Francisco to juggle with because like that's where these great jugglers were. We're in San Francisco, and I juggled in Golden Gate Park every day for a year. And then I went to the convention in Cleveland where I saw Bobby May and probably, I wonder if Anthony Gatta was there. I'm not sure if he was there. He was, because I remember there's a famous picture of the two of them together. Right. Actually, you're right. You're right. I was there and I was actually disappointed that I didn't do the numbers competition. Oh, oh, at the first, can I tell you this about Fargo? Please. The first competition. I hope the this person I'm referring to, I don't even remember his name, doesn't hear this. Okay. I've been juggling for two years and I was working on seven balls. There was this seven, you know, numbers competition and I saw people practicing seven balls and I was like, none of them are really that good. Why don't I give it a shot? And I came in fifth place in the numbers competition, which was very exciting. I got a piece of paper that said I got in fifth place. <laughs> right. And there was a guy who came up to me afterwards and he had come in sixth place, and you didn't get anything for being in sixth place. So he came up to me and he said, listen, you only won by like three one-hundredths of a second. So it was really basically a tie, and I might have actually won, and I'm a professional entertainer, and this would be much more valuable to me, and it doesn't mean anything to you. I think you should give me that fifth place. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, fifth place winner of the numbers in 1980. Exactly. <laughs> Is his name also? Uh, I don't want to guess who that might have been, but I I have no idea. I mean, I, I don't I don't even remember. I have no idea who it was. Um, well, if he had but... won fifth place, we'd all know his name. That's right. <laughs> look, look look what you've done, Tony. Look well, what you've done. That, that's where you heard of me, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I also competed in numbers early on, but I used lacrosse balls. Oh, that was crazy. That's very crazy. I know. But so you were a number center because you actually won in 1982 and 83. Was that with seven balls or how much? Yeah. Yeah, it was with seven. What's your record with seven? Well, there's another story there. Okay. And this wasn't, this is my record at the time. I was in Central Park and I think I had met Edward Jackman there. Mm -hmm. I was practicing in Central Park and I was getting runs of over 100 pretty constant, pretty consistently. Not all the time. I got a run of probably 340 or 350 throws. And there was a guy who'd been watching me for about five or 10 minutes. And I got this incredible run. So it was probably a minute long that I'd done. I juggle pretty low. So mm -hmm. I was so excited because I'd probably never done more than 30 or 40 seconds. And here I'd like blown away my best time ever. And this guy had been watching and he came over to me and he said, don't worry, you'll get it one of these days. <laughs> Right, because you probably dropped at the end. Yes, and that yeah, was, exactly. Right, right. <laughs> Were you sort of pursuing a technical development, a technical sort of direction? Or when did the whole comedy and, and other performance come in? Did you want to be a serious juggler? Yeah, yeah. I actually was, I was, I wasn't very funny. I mean, I was in certain situations, but I didn't understand anything about comedy or performance at all. And I didn't know that I didn't know any of that. So I tried to be funny and without 
just like thinking up things and thinking, oh, I think this is funny, so it must be funny if I go and do it. And I didn't know anything about timing or whatever. So initially I was pretty much just a technical juggler. Actually in Cleveland, when I went to Cleveland, I got a job with this company called the No Elephant Circus, which was a small children's theater circus. And that's where I was able to do it full time. I was making like $50 a show or something and living the high life. So that was like your first like sort of professional tour. Did they travel around or were they located in one place? It was mostly in New York, but after a couple of years, we got pretty good. We got some good people. Will Shaw was in it, mm-hmm. um, David Tabatsky, Bette LaRusso, Steve Bernard, who's a ventriloquist, who's a phenomenal ventriloquist and juggler and magician. Uh, that's where we were at Lincoln Center. We were at Wolf Trap. Uh, we did some regional touring shows. We were at BAM. And what is BAM? I'm sorry. What is what is BAM? Oh, oh, it's the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Hmm, okay. Well, it's a really high-end, you know, not in Manhattan, but it's a really right. high-end artsy theater. And what kind of act were you doing back then? Were you doing just balls? Did you have a, a varied repertoire? Well, I was doing contact juggling and also group juggling. The group who's the people who started it were clowns and juggling and sort of started with simple, pretty basic clown stuff. And then we slowly developed sort of our own style and original ideas. And I started becoming a halfway decent performer. I know Michael Christensen from Big Apple Circus, he uh, he directed our show one year. And then I was meeting real professionals and real smart intelligent, funny people in New York. So I started learning just from sort of osmosis and from doing things wrong long enough. If you have some intelligence, you start figuring out how to do them right. Now, I remember your contact telling you, because I remember when I saw it, for me, this was a little bit after Michael Motion had come out. I think I forget what convention it was saying basically that he felt sort of a an ownership of contact juggling. I remember when I saw you do it, it was so different because you're the first person I saw to use a large stage ball. How did yeah. contact juggling sort of arrive in your life, and how did you decide to take it in that direction? Well, I started doing it just as, um, I mean, it actually just came as a simple thing. You know the, the trick where you juggle and you bounce a ball on your forearm repeatedly, and then uh-huh. you go back into juggling? So I learned that, and then I just had this idea of instead of just bouncing it, just catching it and bouncing it on your elbow. And I thought that was really cool and nobody else was very impressed with it. So I kept trying to do stuff with it to be more impressive. And I started just rolling the ball around and doing it around my arms and learning how to do multiple balls uh, rolling. Similar to juggling, learning something and it being awkward. And then eventually you get to the point where it's smooth and it feels really good and it's easy. And I mean, that's one of the things about juggling that I still really enjoy is that process of sort of mastery of of something so that it it becomes something that's physically pleasing to engage in, I guess. Well, that's nice. That's that feeling of that. I think, you know, you sort of get an inkling of what it is. You kind of get that sense of, I can sort of see it. And before you know it, it becomes something that you can do over and over again. You have that same process and it becomes very satisfying. This, this collection of new skills. Yep, exactly. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because I think of Michael Motion as really being an artist who sort of developed from a conceptual point of view and as sort of sculpture. For me, it was really just internal. And I think for him, it was really an artistic endeavor and concept. Now, had you seen him before you started working on this stuff or just came up sort of independently? Yeah, yeah. We came up with it 
independently. And I actually, someone actually told me that I was doing a butterfly and I didn't know what they were talking about. Right. The move where it goes back and forth on your palm. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was doing, um, I also was already starting to have problems with tendonitis in my arms. So I was started doing stuff with my feet, uh, head rolls and stuff because my arms would hurt sometimes. Is that an issue that's plagued you your whole career, or did that go, go away? And how do you think you developed it? Yeah, it's, it only bothered me the last 38 years, I'd say. <laughs> do you think it was overtraining, or what do you think brought it, brought, it, brought it on? Yeah, absolutely. It's not warming up, not paying attention to my body, overtraining, working too hard and paying attention when something starts to hurt, because I really want that trick. I guess I'm lucky. I've never maybe ever practiced that hard. I used to practice four hours a day. What was the most you would practice in a day? Well, in, in any particular day, you know, I, I went to juggling convention. Right. So there are probably days where I practiced for 12 sure. hours. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it's gone up and down. It's, it's everywhere from three or four hours a day to three hours a week, depending on the situation. Now, do you think it's hard to keep your interest in juggling over the years? I mean, I know for myself that I've also got to that place where the idea of not juggling every day at a certain point in my life was crazy. And now I find myself going quite a long stretch without juggling. Are you sort of in that mode as well? Again, it, it changes. Right now I've been, you know, I've been buying this house and getting engaged. Things like that certainly have interfered. And there are periods where I haven't juggled that much. And there are periods where I wasn't really happy with it or myself or something like that, where I haven't really enjoyed it that much. I don't think I've ever really lost the desire. And I still... Like I told you when we talked earlier, I've got like this new project mm -hmm. and that's kind of exciting. That's learning 25 tricks or relearning because these are 25 tricks you used to be able to do. Yeah. 25 tricks I could do 25 years ago. And can you give us a couple of examples of what some of those tricks might be? Well, what I was working on today was juggling clubs on a tightrope. I learned tightrope a long time ago and then I went into slack rope and I'm really good at juggling and doing tricks on slack rope, but tightrope has just died. So the last few weeks, I've been relearning in tightrope, and I got 14 throws today. It was very exciting. I think one of my first memories of you, I think, is when you won the festival, uh, the IGA, and this was at the 47th. What, what, where was that at? The 47th one uh, in Vermont. Interestingly enough, where I live now, in Vermont. And I remember, like after, I think I was directing the show back then, and we had you in the show, and you did your contact juggling in the competitions. But then for your your spot in the show, for the first time, I'd never seen you do this. You did a comedy routine and you included slack rope. And I, I think I remember you eating a piece of cheese. Is that is that my memory serving me right? Yes, that's exactly right. And I think I remember the joke, too. I think I remember the joke that it was dangerous because the cheese was sharp. That's it. <laughs> you can't use that, okay? That's my joke. Okay. I got you. I, I, I promise. The other thing I remember is I had Brian Dubay and Todd Smith on opposite sides of the rope. Okay, right. The, the two prop makers, yeah. And Bill Gadoz was in front of me, and he was so, I wouldn't say he was nervous, he was anxious, but he did something which very rarely happened. He, like, when I got on the rope, he pulled really hard to make sure I didn't fall off, and he threw me up in the air. Oh, and, Fell on I, my ass. <laughs> I don't remember you falling. Did you fall from the rope? Yeah, yeah, I fell right on my ass. Oh, I, that's I was I don't right, and, and it was this great ad lib. I said, "Could I get six new volunteers?" <laughs> well, Bill Giddes was a very strong man in his prime. Yeah, he's probably still a strong man, but he was uh, 
quite tall, as I remember, too. Yes, I'm sure he's, yeah, he was. I'm sure he's still tall. Let's talk about you entering the competitions. Was that the first time you entered or the, the time you won? I don't, so I don't remember you competing before that. Yep, yep, nope, I haven't competed before or since. And how many festivals have you gone to? Because I think at a certain point, I don't remember you continuing your relationship with the IJ, or at least I hadn't seen you at many festivals recently. Yeah, I've been to regional fence festivals periodically. I was able to get to the one in Springfield this summer, which is the first one in a long time, just for Saturday. Right. Again, I've usually been working or involved in other stuff or out of the country or something. So I've probably been to seven or eight IJAs, I guess. Any chance of you appearing uh, this year in Fort Wayne, Indiana? Fort Wayne. Oh, Des Moines was... The year before or something? I forget. Anyway. Well, we had a Cedar Rapids. That's the one I directed in the 70th. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, and Springfield, I think, yeah, which I didn't go to. It's pretty unlikely because I'm getting married on July 6th, and then I'm actually probably going to be working the next two weeks. Let's talk about your work. Let's, let's kind of go on more a little bit more about your career. So I know you've done a lot of collaboration, so you're with this No Elephant Circus. At what point did you strike out on your own, and what kind of shows did you do? Well, there was this ventriloquist, uh, Steve Bernard, and he was a pretty good juggler. And we went, he'd done street shows in, in Denmark. And I went with him, I think in 1985 or 86, we put uh, shows together and performed that summer. And then the next, the end of that summer, the head of the, uh, the director of the Danish National Circus saw us on the street and he offered us a job. Wow. In the circus the next year. Right. With him doing ventriloquism and me juggling. Oh, that sounds like a, quite an adventure. So you, you toured with the Danish Circus. It actually wasn't a tour. It was awesome because they have a circus building downtown in Copenhagen. And I just rented an apartment and I biked to work every day. I live in the dream, man. That sounds fantastic. Yep. And what did you do, like an eight-minute or six-minute act? How long was your act? Yeah, it was probably six or seven minutes. When did you start adding more comedy? You said you, you kind of experimented... When did you realize the need to do a longer show, or did you always want to? Because you know, at a certain point, we can't stick to just doing six, eight minutes in this sort of environment unless we're, you know, the Chris Cremo mold or Albert Lucas. At what point did you start expanding, and did you do cruise ships, and how did you develop more material? Working with the No Elephant Circus, I started doing, started to, to learn how to do some comedy. There were some really high risk shows like Wolf Trap or Lincoln Center and stuff where stuff had to be really good. But a lot of times we'd do small gigs and we practiced a lot. And I actually started doing stuff on my own in this nightclub in New York called uh, Mostly Magic. And initially I started with like a, a seven or eight minute or 10 minute act at the most. And then the owner said, listen, um, I can pay you more if you can do 15 minutes or you know, 20 minutes. You can be like a middle act or something like that. And um, I started working on stuff and doing street shows in Denmark and then started doing some street shows in New York. I started trying verbal stuff. And I wasn't that good at it at first, but I learned and, and doing it at that nightclub really helped because I was working with other professionals who were very good and they were good comedians and the magicians, a lot of them were really good comedians. So I learned a lot from watching them. And then I guess the big thing was getting this role on this tour of uh, the Broadway show Sugar Babies. Who was the star? Was that with uh, Mickey Rooney or a different celebrity? No, it was Pinky Lee, actually, who was okay. a... Right. No, if you know him. Yeah, I think he was quite a big, big name in Atlantic City. Yeah. Well, he had a TV show in the 50s. And so the audience for that kind of show knew him. And he was enough of a draw to get uh, audiences to come. I was the comic 
variety relief. I was they hired me to do an act in the first act and an act in the second, and they both had to be funny and verbal and at least eight or ten minutes long. Yeah, that was the show Michael Davis kind of got his start in. Right. Working with Mickey Rooney. And quite a few jugglers, I think Frankie Olivier, Dan Rosen. Yep. It, it was quite a, a training ground for a lot of great comedy jugglers. Mm-hmm. And for me, too. I wasn't going to say that, but you, you <laughs> once again, your comic timing was impeccable. Well, another, another great comedian you worked with was um, someone else I'd ever worked with was Henny Youngman. Probably not a name the, the younger folks will know, but he was sort of famous as a one-line comic, one-liners. Yeah, yeah very, very corny. Actually, similar to Sugar Babies. I just worked with him uh, for one one show, and he was, you know, I was very surprised, but I thought he was very funny. Normal circumstances, though, kind of jokes were not the type of thing that I would think was funny, but in the context, in the situation, his timing was great. He's a very, very likable guy. I think that was a big part of it, is that he's just extremely likable. You wanted to like what he was talking about, so it was easy to, to, uh, to laugh at his jokes. And he was the... Take my wife, please. Right? No, no, that was. Oh, that's not him. That, that's that's not Dangerfield. I never worked with him. Oh, I thought that was thought that was Henny Youngman. Take no. my wife. No. Now in Sugar Babies, was there a plot or just oh, sort actually, of a? No, actually. Um, I think I'm right. I think you're right. Actually, I think you're right. I think yeah. you're. I'm sorry. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> I, you know, I don't claim to be a, a a real serious scholar of the older comics. I know that Mickey Rooney, supposedly, in the, in the original Sugar Babies, was not a fan of anybody getting more laughs than him. Uh-huh. And he would sometimes uh, put his foot down. You never had that problem? No, I, I don't think I've ever worked with any big star who, was, who really was um, insisting that, that nobody be better than them. Most of the, the big stars that I've worked at with, I've found to be very, almost always very gracious. And there is the, the one that I was thinking of is Tony Randall. From The Odd Couple. Yeah. Yeah. He did a show in New York called The International Stars of Magic. And I was only hired for it because I was born in Cuba, even though I wasn't really Cuban. <laughs> but, but, right. You were international. Yeah. I, I took the gig anyway. Sure. Why not? <laughs> it was interesting because he emceed the show. And I guess he really liked magic. And I was the one variety act. And we rehearsed the, my act. It was the same thing with the, the slack rope and people holding it and the, the sharp cheese. Mm-hmm. And we rehearsed the act, and he understood it perfectly. It was very quick. He was very professional, really nice. And then when we performed it, he just ad-libbed the out of it. <laughs> right, right. It kind of threw me off, but he was really funny. It made I, – I don't have a video of that. I wish I had a video of that because it was just brilliant. And I don't know if he was ad-libbing at the time or if he'd thought of stuff in between or whatever, but he was did a very good job of not jumping on my jokes. Mm-hmm. But he just had funnier ones. <laughs> well, some people you realize are celebrities like for a reason. Like you really don't know much about them. But at a certain point you go, wow, this guy's talented. Yep. And Tony Randall was always, always one of my favorites. I always thought he had a, a great presence. I didn't know him much more than being on The Odd Couple. And then maybe on some game shows, but he had a long, long career. As far as being like in one of the, the, the magic, I've always liked a show called It's Magic. Do you ever work with other like uh, variety acts where you're the one variety act in the show? Do you like that spot? Yeah, I've actually worked a few magic conventions like that. And of course, like at the Magic Castle. That's a gig I never did at the Magic Castle. I've done a couple one-offs there. So I could say I worked the Magic Castle, but I never did the full week. I know it's a lot of shows. Is it 
21 shows in the week? It was a lot. I forget. I mean, they have different rooms, different performances. You know, and I was in, I don't know if it's the main room. It was either. It's called the Palace of Mystery is the main room. Yeah, I forget. It held like 70 or 80 people or 100 people or something. But the thing I remember about that is I was doing there and it was was going very well. And an agent from, I forget the agency, but it was like one of the big talent agencies in L.A., the guy came up to me and he said, so tell me the secret. How do you do that with the ball? What's, you know, what's the secret? Right. What's the so, magic secret? Yeah. And I said, well, actually, in the booth <laughs> over there, there's a guy with like this laser and I've got these implants here. The ball follows the laser beam as it's going around. So I gave him the story and then the guy looked at me and said, oh, so you're not going to tell me, are you? And he just walked off. Right. So he, he wanted some other more reasonable explanation than lasers. Right. I mean, and I just, it didn't occur to me that he would even, con I mean, it just, it kind of boggled my mind that uh, this obviously ridiculous story I was telling him, he thought, one thing was he thought that I was actually trying to fool him with this ridiculous story, which no sane person would believe. And then realizing that he actually thought that it was a magic trick I was doing. Well, one trick you do that does seem like magic is, I know you're very well known, or at least I know you, for blind juggling. And I remember seeing a video of you, I think, with your eyes covered completely with like tape or some kind of mm -hmm. covering and doing amazing tricks while you're, you you can't see. But that's no trick. That's just purely your ability to juggle blind, right? Yep. Yeah. And I actually, What are some tricks you can do while you're while you're blind? What what kind of tricks can you do? Probably one of the hardest is a pirouette. One ball or all three balls? Well, one, one ball? Yeah. yeah. Just one. <laughs> sure. But even that is is pretty What's the secret? Just keeping it very low and spinning around fast and Yeah, well, it's keeping it very low, making sure you don't start spinning until you throw it and doing it 7,000 times so that you end up with your hand in the right spot. That was a trick you could do consistently not to do on stage. A yeah. One ball pirouette blind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Pretty amazing. What's your What's your record for juggling blind? Have you ever tried to see how long you could do? Yeah, I think it's about five minutes. Wow. Um, but and, and I stopped. And I have it. That's not something I've tried to do as long as I could. But I definitely, I'm guessing that, you know, I could do five minutes tomorrow if I practiced a little bit. Right. That's something you still do in your shows now, this uh, demonstration of, of blind juggling? Well, not so much. I actually really, I developed a very, very funny act with a partner, this woman, mm -hmm. Melissa, who is weighs like 95 pounds and she's an acrobat, an aerialist. And we do this whole, I mean, it's mostly jokes. It's just really bad eye jokes, but it's funny because I'm blindfolded. Again, the context makes all the difference. And she, uh, it's sort of hard to explain. It doesn't sound that funny. But anyway, I put myself in this meditative trance in order to do the most difficult trick possible. And while I'm there, she makes sure that I'm really under. And then she climbs all over me, gets up on my shoulders, steals the ball, stands up on my shoulders and juggles, and then drops them back down into my hands and... Actually, she does a bunch of stealing her places, and then she climbs up on me and around me and steals the balls and then comes back down and sort of brings me back into uh, the real world. It's just a bunch of jokes and me doing eight or nine uh, blind tricks. And it's like a 12-minute act. It's 12 to 14-minute act when, when we let all the stops out. And you're able to catch the balls that she drops while she's on your shoulders back into the juggling pattern while blindfolded. 
Yeah, she doesn't drop them from very high. Still, that's that's pretty impressive. Now, I know you like to do a lot of collaboration. One person I know you've worked with a lot was uh, Jen Slaw. I remember you did a very nice uh, cigar box juggling routine with her. What's your, what, what attracts you to working with other people and doing collaborations? Um, well, Jen was actually in the New York Juggling Club, and she was going to perform at the New York convention. And I remember talking to her about it, and I was like, well, what are you going to do? And she was like, oh, I don't know. I'm going to do some. And I was like, no, <laughs> no, put an act together. I'll help you put an act together. So I worked with her putting an act together, putting a three-ball routine together, which went over pretty well. And then when we were doing that, it was we took a break. She took a cigar box and a stage ball and just rolled the ball from one surface to the other and then rolled it back. And I was like, holy cow, what? do that again. And she was like, oh, it's just nothing. It's just this little thing. And I was like, no, 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 no. There's, that's That's fabulous. And we ended up developing all sorts of different tricks from that and put together a contact box ball routine. And then we actually ended up putting an hour show together. What was the show called? Like Love Something? Or what was the... I forget the name of the act. Oh, boy. Am I I putting you on the spot? It was only 10 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Something askew. Okay, well, we could could look it up or we could... uh... We can leave that once again to, to the trivia experts. Right. <laughs> to call into the to call yeah, into the show. I don't want to give them everything. You know, exactly. Right. We have to leave some mystery there. And of course, Jenna's gone on to be a very successful speaker mm-hmm. and doing a lot of motivational speaking. I'll have to have her on in a... This is what we'll do. I'll make sure to have Jen on in a future episode, and we'll see if she remembers okay. the name of the act, because I find her to be very talented. She might want to be reminded. Well, it sounds like you were kind of instrumental in helping her at a certain point. Yeah. To, you know, go from a hobbyist to being more of a professional. Yeah. And then actually another student, uh, Kelsey Strauch, who's in uh, yeah. New York. Um, she was a student of mine at NECA. And we put a uh, routine together that we did at the Austin Juggling Festival and in Vermont and a few places that uh, was a Austin Power spoof. Mm-hmm where I dress up in an Austin Powers silly getup, and she's in this go-go outfit, and we do this club routine that is just ridiculously silly with a couple of cool tricks in it. Now, it sounds like I looked at your website. You enjoy dressing up as silly characters. Yes. Because a lot of your performances as are as characters. When did you start developing that, and, and what attracts you to sort of not just being Tony Duncan on stage? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was a slow transition. There's, um, you know, I guess I really found that I really enjoyed just making stuff up with people, just sort of ad-libbing. Like, I actually like doing atmosphere parties. Mm-hmm. Walk-around type stuff, yeah. Yeah, I really like it because I can get some just absurd notion in my head and go over to a group of people and just play it out. If they're not interested, I just leave them alone, and oftentimes people are willing to play along, and... I just follow some really absurd clown concept about a character or personality or some event that happens or I'll invent some crisis or do something. I guess I found I really enjoy just doing stuff that's completely off the wall. So doing characters, like um, one of the characters is this UPS delivery guy, which I think would be great for parties. I haven't gotten (laughs) work on this. Maybe the podcast will bring... We'll bring the calls coming in. 
But it's this theater show that we did that was about these board office workers in this uh, shipping and receiving. It was called Shipping and Receiving, and these board office workers who are just hanging out, and I'm a UPS guy who comes in. And the opening of the show is me pretending to be a UPS guy and just trying to deliver a package and interacting with the audience for like five to ten minutes. Because it takes a while for people to realize that it's not real, that I'm actually part of the show. So there's something I really, really like about pretending to be something and then getting it to the point where it's absurd enough so that everybody knows that it wasn't real. Let's talk about a few of your characters. I'll just give you a list and maybe just give me a, a short synopsis of what these different guys do. So I guess Charlie Smarty Pants is sort of your Austin Powers yes. type mm-hmm. of character. Now, what about Senor Antonio? Oh, that was a guy that I developed on a cruise ship. That was a whole like 20 to 30 minute show. It'd be like my second show on a cruise ship. And it's this Argentinian macho juggler who just thinks he's just the best juggler in the world. He's not bad. Right. He's definitely not bad. But he's definitely better than the guy who was on a few days ago, that American guy. He'll start doing some trick, and the audience will tell him, no, that American guy, Tony, <laughs> was doing that. Oh, I see. Right, right. So you're competing with yourself. Right, exactly. exactly. Gotcha. And how many cruises did you do? Was cruising a big part of your career? Yeah. Yeah, I did almost all the cruise lines. A lot of the the top ones. Um, I never did Carnival, but I probably did 10 or 15 different cruise lines. And where were some of your favorite places to go? Any place stand out as being the uh, dream destination for you? Maybe one of the best ones was being on a cruise in Australia and getting booked on another cruise in Australia a week later. So the two cruise lines paid to Mm. put me up in Cairns, Australia, in you know, and I was really into scuba diving, and I was really into I studied evolutionary biology. So I spent a week just scuba diving and taking tours with these expert guides into the forests and the sort of savanna there. That was pretty amazing. But I, you know, I've been to Japan and Indonesia and India. I actually traveled in India a lot. Yeah, New Zealand. India for cruising or India doing other kinds of shows or just just traveling? Both. Again, like my, my ex-wife was belonged to this spiritual group that is based in India. So I did some cruises with um, like crystal cruises and some of the more luxury cruise lines will go in South Asia, Southeast Asian India. So I would be on a cruise there and then I would meet her in, in Bombay and we'd go to this retreat place. So we did that maybe three or four times. I actually met the Dalai Lama once there. Wow. Did you show him any juggling or? No, no, no. We were, we were, we we'd evolved beyond that. I remember one of my favorite Dalai Lama stories is, well, it's not one of my, I'd never met him, but they, the singer Bobby Brown one time saw the Dalai Lama. He's like, Mr. Lama, Mr. Lama. He thought his last name was actually Lama. <laughs> so I hope you didn't make that mistake. Um, now, I'm, now I feel embarrassed. <laughs> yeah, you didn't know his name was actually, his first name was Dolly, second name right. Lama. Right, let's go through a couple more of these characters. How about Monsieur T? Is that your French your French character? Is that like Mr. T's French brother? Well, no, he's actually just the sort of elegant dandy, I guess. But yeah, he's, he's European. I'm not sure what country is from. The accent can change 
from sentence to sentence. I see. So there's an indeterminate accent. Yeah, and just sort of at high end, at very fancy parties. I, gotcha. Yeah, I don't do a lot of stuff. Again, it's just mostly walking around, doing some juggling and being pretentious. Well, sounds like a fun walk around character, though. Like the snobby French juggler. Yeah. <laughs> and you have a, a, what, a Scottish character? Is that Angus, Angus Duncan? Yes. Yeah, that's my cousin. And he wears a kilt. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I have a lot of fun with that. And do you, what's underneath the kilt? Is that, do you go uh, commando or is that? Or do no, you... no. Okay, good. Unfortunately, that's, that's a myth that, uh, that died with me. I see, I see. It gets awfully drafty. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about some of the uh, more unique uh, celebrities or people you've worked with. One name that stands out is uh, someone I've heard of. I'm not exactly sure. I know he's something, some kind of big financial wizard. You did a, a party for George Soros? Yeah, it was um, it was a big party in Long Island, and I saw him. <laughs> right. But uh, it was just one of these big parties for rich people. It wasn't gotcha. anything. Uh, who, was, who was there? Who was the Secretary of State under Bush? Oh, gosh. I don't, I don't know. I, I hate to say my ignorance, but I don't. It's, I don't really follow politics that much. So yeah, was I was Bush president one time. I think he was president, right? Bush. Yes. Yeah, he was. <laughs> he was twice as two different people. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> I wondered about that. He seemed awfully old to be uh, president again. But he was a big financial guy, so that was just a very, very fancy party. Just one of those the people that you you have on your client list that's sort of impressive. Yep. Mm-hmm. So you did some TV work. Now, I know you're on the, uh, I don't I didn't watch it myself, but the soap opera One Life to Live, and you tell me you actually had a character name. That's yes, pretty impressive. That was that was very exciting. I, was, uh, I wasn't just an extra. I was actually, I was on the credits at the very bottom, probably the very last name on there. I was on there twice, so I think I had the same name the second time. Did you have a plot line? Like, were you the evil juggler who was somehow married or evil twin or something like that? Any kind of plot line or just in the background? No, nothing. Yeah, I was unicycling on one and juggling on another. Right, some of that work that, you know, you see uh, Jack Calvin gets a lot of that, where you're just, they want a juggler. Mm-hmm. They say, we need a juggler, we want Tony Duncan. Oh, well, well my favorite one was uh, doing a commercial for MCI that actually was the one commercial I did that I got a lot of residuals from. That allowed me to buy my first Macintosh computer and printer and... Uh, it was for MCI, and my ex-wife and I had developed this. It was this whole thing about families and neighborhoods, and it was some famous movie director. And we showed him this thing that we developed about a grocer and his assistant, and I was juggling five oranges, and she took an orange and put it on the scale and weighed it and then dropped it back in the pattern. And he was just super excited about that. And we filmed it. We spent an hour filming it in all these different ways. And I was so excited. And the commercial came out. And the commercial was me with my arm around my wife for two seconds. (laughs) Right. But you got paid. I got paid. And every other juggler who went to that audition was like, why did they get the job? (laughs) That's showbiz, though, right? I mean, it's not always the way it turns out uh, that you think it's going to turn out to be. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, what about your experience on the Martha Stewart show? Did she have her own talk show? I, I know she had a her cooking show. Was yeah. you a guest on the cooking show? It was just a home home stuff show, which involved cooking right. and other things. And there was an, actually another juggler in New York who worked on her show, and she got me onto the she got me onto the show to teach her juggling. And they made juggling ball. We made juggling balls. 
So I was sewing. I juggled and sewed on the Martha Stewart show. Nice. And then later on, maybe a year later or something, she hired me to do this Kmart commercial. She was putting a Martha Stewart branded stuff in Kmart. And um, they needed a really good juggler. So they hired me because they needed someone who could juggle a mop, a full can of paint, some loose towels, and hmm. two other things that were, of course, all impossible to juggle. Right, right. But again, the director was was rather upset that they couldn't get a good juggler who could do this stuff. So we ended up just animating the all those props, and I taught Martha how to juggle again, and it was just making sure her arm motions were appropriate to what juggling would be like. But one of the interesting things there is she liked my juggling balls. I had silicone juggling balls, and I was rolling them around, and she thought that was really neat. And she said, you know, I really like those balls, especially the chartreuse one. And I said, oh, the yellow one? <laughs> right. And she gave me a look and she called like 20 feet away. She was like, Sarah, come over here. And her assistant, Sarah, came over and she said, Sarah, what color is that ball? And Sarah looked at me and she looked at Martha and she said, chartreuse. And Martha just gave me a very, very um, self-satisfied smile. I'm not quite sure the difference between yellow and chartreuse myself. Yes. Are they... Well, obviously Sarah did. <laughs> well, that's why she's Martha Stewart's assistant. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I remember one time there was a, a commercial for, I think it was Bud Light Beer. And on the sides, you know, on the on the, the pictures they had describing the commercial, the guy was having a barbecue grill, a six-pack of beer, and a bag of charcoal. <laughs> and they thought that was a possible right. thing to do. Well, that Actually, uh, we didn't get that job. Well, the, the one that I did get was uh, one for a Canon commercial where they'd hired someone to juggle four balls in one hand because they needed someone to juggle four balls in one hand for this robot that was going to do it in this commercial. And that person, I think it was some amazing Russian juggler, like couldn't do it, like leave. And commercial was like the next day or two days later, and they just needed someone so they're like, okay, well, Tony, can you juggle four balls in one hand? And I said, well, sort of, yeah. They was like, it just has to be for a few seconds. They just need to get the, a video loop of it. And I was like, yeah, I can do that. So I go to the place, and they um, put me in a room, and I'm practicing. And I'm getting runs of, you know, maybe some runs of eight or ten seconds. Right. And then an assistant director comes and says, oh, no, you have to use these balls. And he gives me these stage balls. What kind of balls? Stage balls. You know, oh, stage balls. Right, 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 right. Balls. I'm like, well, okay, that's going to be a lot harder. But I'm yeah. doing it and I'm getting, you know, I'm, I'm able to do some runs and it's, it's film. So they'll just, until I get it right, they'll get it. And then he comes back in and gives me two sets of silk gloves that I have to be wearing. <laughs> right, with the, sta with, the, with the stage balls. With the stage balls. And right. <laughs> I'm like, well, okay, I, eventually we'll be able to get this shot. Right. And then I come out. And I start to do it, and the director is like, oh, no, you have to do it in frame, so it can't be more than, like, two feet over your head. Right. Maybe a multiplex style? Did you try that? or? No, no, it had to be a circle. It had to oh. be a circle for, this, for their storyboard. I mean, the storyboard can't be changed. 
Right, right, exactly. <laughs> so I told him I could do four balls in two hands or three balls in one hand low enough. And they're like, well, we need the four balls. So I did four balls in two hands, but I was too short. So they had to put me on these boxes in front of the blue screen. And then they were doing it. And it turns out that that still wasn't good enough because I was juggling in front of my face. I had to do the balls over to the side in a circle without my body being in front of the blue screen at all. Right. And throughout all of this, I could just hear the, again, the frustration of the crew, you know, the director that they got this amateur to, to couldn't do what, what they'd been asked to do. Well, you know, people's image of what jugglers can do and what they actually can do, even the image of the juggling pattern itself is just this sort of circle yep. that, that is very easy. And why can't you do eight or nine balls in the circle? Like, like the guy I saw on TV. Right, yeah. Now, Tony, didn't we have a semi-professional interaction about 15 years ago? We were both at a trade show. Right. And uh, I was doing some rather boring presentation for some IT company, Sprint or something like that. And then I go over across the hall and you've got like 400 people watching you do some hysterically funny thing. And... Um, Bill is doing something with a um, ping pong ball. Barry. Barry. Barry huh? is his partner, right? <laughs> yeah, I think so. It's been, it's been a couple of years, but I think Barry is my partner. Yeah. So Barry's doing something with his ping pong balls, and some accident happens, and he spits the ping pong ball into the audience from his mouth, and everyone goes, ooh. Right, accidentally I, on purpose, I, yeah. Yeah, and I, I happened to catch the ball, and Barry said, hey, excuse me, sir, could you give that ball back to me? And I calmly put it into my mouth and spit it right into Barry's mouth. <laughs> well, did you go see the? Did you go to the free clinic afterwards? Did you? <laughs> no, but I just—I was just honored to be uh, an unwitting part of your uh, your presentation. I imagine people thought that it was a setup. Well, you're often known as the third Raspini. Yes, <laughs> I get that a lot. Yes. Hey, let's talk about one of your world records. We're coming towards the end of our time together. It's gone very fast, but let's talk about a couple more things. Uh, you have a world record that I have to talk about. Bouncing a ping pong ball on the edge of a paddle. Okay, well, this is where I told you that it's important that this podcast does not go to the Republic of Georgia, right? Right, right, right. I'll make sure that it does not go to the Republic of Georgia. <laughs> so there's a, a website called recordsetter.com. Right? Mm -hmm. And I've got a bunch of records on there. And... This was a record that was very low. It was like 20 bounces or something or 30 bounces. And this was actually, I was working on a ping pong ball routine where I would bounce, a, I'd do a bunch of different um, tricks on a ping pong paddle and ball. And then I would spit, end up spitting five ping pong balls in a whole comedy routine. But anyway, I saw this record and I broke it pretty comfortably. And then this guy from Georgia broke my record. I had like 78 bounces or something. And then he did like 120. And I was like, Wow. Okay. So then I broke his. I got a hundred and <laughs> and then he right. broke mine. And then I broke his. And then he broke mine. And I broke his. And he broke mine. And about four or five years ago, he got three hundred. Wow. Okay. And so he he actually has the record now. But I've got video of me doing like three twenty, three forty. Like I've got like five or six videos of me doing up to four hundred. And I'm right. I'm hoping that he dies, and then I can post them. You know what it probably is? He's probably the same guy that came in sixth place right. in the seven ball competition. And he just, he has to beat you so badly. He's had this whole 
whole vendetta against well, that, you. That could be. I, that hadn't occurred to me. It's a good callback. It's a good callback. Very good callback, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Comedy, right? Yep. Bring it up to the present time before we before we leave. Now you've done a lot of work with the with the circus, and I think you've actually broken ground on a new circus facility. Is that right? Yeah. Last year we built the first dedicated circus building in the United States. First designed, dedicated, built from scratch. Circus Trapezium, it's called. And that's in Vermont. It's in Brattleboro, Vermont. It's beautiful. It's got radiant floor heating, like my house. Nice. So I'm actually doing more bouncing now because there's cement in my home and my place of work all over. Lots of aerialists. The school was started by two Cirque du Soleil aerialists who are twins. I've been working with them for 14 years. And there's amazing. We do every kind of aerial stuff. Uh, Sear wheel, German wheel. Um, Jan Dam, do you know him from Cirque du Soleil? Yeah, Diablo, Diablo is, he's from the Bay Area. At least I've known him in the Bay Area. Very funny. Yeah. Yeah. He does an act with his suspenders and uh, like a clown act and a great uh, di- uh, roll-a-bull act. Yep, yep. And so he's teaching there. A oh, student, nice. A student of mine who's just a brilliant guy, Zeb Gallopo, is teaching there. And we've got a, a bunch of, we've got a great, great staff of teachers. Really, everyone really is very talented, intelligent, and works really well together. So that's really exciting. It's a beautiful building with 40-foot ceilings, all sorts of stuff hanging, and people doing stuff all the time. It's it's actually pretty exciting. And if a young juggler is hearing this and wants to actually go there to study juggling, is there some kind of program they can, en- they can enroll in? There is. There, we have a professional training program that's been going on for about eight or ten years. Nice. For nice. people who want to develop professional circus acts. I'd say three quarters of them end up are with Ariel because the, the founders are aerialists and a lot of the training and the reputation really is with aerialists. But actually, Tom, Tom Wall was a student there, I guess, four years ago. Right. Well, he's a very talented man, yep. uh, Tom Wall. Mm-hmm. I know he just left the Cirque du Soleil. He's on his own now, and I'm really excited to see what he's going to do. Yeah, yep. And his, uh, his wife, Chloe, was also a student at NECA after, after he was there. Well, that sort of brought us up toward the end of our time, Tony. Can you tell us what the, what the future plans are? You, have, you know we're getting married. Where does, where does juggling fit into your future? Is that something you're going to continue pursuing or other things? Are you getting into politics? I know you... You're interested in politics. Are you going to run for office? I don't know. I mean, I guess that's something I've started to think about a little bit. There's interesting local politics here. It's a small town. It's uh, 12,000 people, but it's a very vibrant, vibrant town. A lot of art, a lot of uh, really interesting, provocative, creative stuff going on here. So that I guess that is a small possibility. What about Tony Duncan, President 2020? Probably not. <laughs> the exploratory committee did not come back with great polling numbers for me. We might wait until 2024. Well, hopefully this this uh, appearance on the Drop Everything podcast will have raised your profile enough to get those big donors to cough up some money and we can see a successful run okay. in the coming years. Yeah, but tell them, yeah, tell, yeah we, we need to start the conference for 2024 now. Okay, so. you got it. All right, Tony. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was a real pleasure catching up with you. And I hope to see you in the future. Let's have a big hand, everybody out there, for my special guest in this number 67, Mr. Tony Duncan. Thanks, Tony. Yeah, thank you. It was great talking to you. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 67. 
my conversation with the one and only Mr. Tony Duncan. Thank you, Tony. Been a long time. You're a good friend and a great, great juggler. All right, let's thank our sponsors, starting with the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Don't know about the IJ? Don't know about this great group of jugglers? Go to juggle.org and join us this year in Fort Wayne, Indiana for the IJA's annual festival. Look for my book, Driven to Succeed, at Amazon.com. should be out in a week or two. It's a good book about life, success, and how to drive your best. Combining career stories from the Raspini brothers with stories about driving. All right, go out there into the world and drop everything, except when you're juggling.